0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. I was thinking about the words of that song, even though I don't see it, you're working, even though I don't feel it, you're working. And have been thinking about that a little bit more in the last few weeks. Um, we have had, during this COVID-19 time, we've actually had some people find us and begin to attend uh, our services, our prayer times. Uh, through the week, and, and we have actually gotten to know new people. In fact, there are people now that are considering White Ridge Baptist Church their church home that some of us haven't met in person, which is amazing, and uh, and yet we're getting to know them through Zoom and, and uh, Teams and so on, and uh, we're praising God for that. He is working even in these se- this season, and um, And Perhaps some of you have uh, done the survey already this past week. We sent out a survey Uh, If we are connected with you because we have your email that you would have gotten that and we've had many respond I'd love to see more respond if you don't have internet and uh, somehow, you know, someone that doesn't have internet can't hear this live broadcast um, Then please pass on to them say hey phone the church office and they'll do the survey with you and uh, we can have a a collection of that. What we're really trying to measure is we're trying to measure the sense of isolation that our church family is having, as well as a sense of the readiness to return to services and groups and community activities in the church family, uh, and just to see how, how well people are taking that. There'll be Everybody on the continuum from very conservative to much more ready to come in. And so we want to just be sensitive to the body of Christ. So um, take that survey if you get a chance. We're going to be in the book of Genesis again today. And I don't know about you, but I'm really enjoying our study of Jacob. And uh, today and next week, we're going to continue on to Jacob. And then all summer long, uh, actually in July and August, we're going to be talking about Joseph as we finish off the book of Genesis and then in the fall, we're going to be starting into the book of James in the New Testament. And so uh, this morning, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about family birth order. <laughs> now, I want to ask you what are the factors that make you the way you are? I don't want to overstate this thing called birth order, but certainly it, it measures in, it weighs into many of the influencing factors that make you who you are. If you were an only child, if you had one other sibling, if you were a middle child, and so on. And um, some of the stereotypes can be very funny, and we joke about it. But actually, when we are actually thinking about us and dealing with our past and trying to understand what makes me the way I am, we have to think about birth order sometimes. For example, I am a middle child. I have an older brother. and and a younger sister and I love them both dearly but during my entire growing up years my older brother by 22 months was always bigger than me and stronger than me and smarter than me and somehow I, I can't help but think about I wonder what how that influences me what why what am I and who am I today that somehow is related to my older brother or my younger sister or and so and so on so I'd like to think about that, because this morning we're going to be talking about Jacob. And Jacob was, of course, as you know, the second born just by minutes, but he was the second born. He had an older brother. And uh, that weighs into who he was. And last week we talked about some of the things that Jacob's life consisted in. We talked about how there are main plots and then there are subplots in our lives, And we talked about the fact that um, the subplots of Jacob's life are always trying to, God is using them to get him back onto the main story of his life. Last week we concluded three things about these things, how God uses the circumstances of our lives and the people of our lives to teach us lessons so that we will understand the main story that he is writing in our lives. The first thing I said was that it takes faith to believe that God is at work in the subplots of our lives when we can't see what he's doing or why he's doing it. Just like we sang just now, even though I don't see it, you're working. And that's what the subplots of life often are. God, what are, what are you doing? And, and we have to ask, well, God is at work. The second thing we said last week was that It takes even greater faith to believe that God is still at work in the subplots, the side stories, the pauses of our lives, especially when they are completely wrong, sinful choices of our own doing. We see that in the life of Jacob. It takes even greater faith to believe that God can take a messed up situation that we messed up and say, and he's going to bring out something good in it and rewrite the story. And then thirdly, we said that it requires patient endurance to wait upon God to reveal to us more about the main plot, the big idea, the main storyline of our life, which is to transform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And It takes great patience, because sometimes we find ourselves on excursions, just like Jacob, 20 years with Laban, his father-in-law. before he gets back onto the main plot. God is always at work in these subplots. In fact, I love what Timothy Keller writes, excuse me, in his book called Counterfeit Gods. He says, we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not that, he says. Rather, It comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. The Bible repeatedly shows us weak people who don't deserve God's grace, don't seek it, and don't appreciate it even after they have received it. Folks, that is Jacob, and that is you and I. Okay, that that is the story of the Bible, and that is the story of us as well. It's incredible how magnifying of the grace of God is as we understand the history of our own lives as well as the history of the Bible. And so this morning, if we were to choose a word that summarized the life of Jacob, I would probably have to choose the word struggler or wrestler. I know that his name means deceiver, heel grabber but I think the word struggle or struggler wrestler is more uh, apropos for him and from the beginning of his life we see this let me just rehearse where we have come from so far in the past several weeks in Genesis 25 verse 22 when Rebecca is pregnant with twins in her womb it says in the Bible the children struggled together there's the word right off the bat Jacob is a struggler. He's in the womb, struggling. And she says to God, why is this happening? And God says, two nations are within you, and the older will serve the younger. Right from the firstborn, when when they're born, Esau comes out first, but guess what? Right on his heels, literally, grabbing his heel is Jacob, heel grabber. He was struggling. They were struggling within the womb of Rebekah right from the beginning. Then later on, we read in the scripture that in chapter 25, verse 30, the two young men now are older, and uh, as young men, Esau's been out hunting. He comes back from a hunting trip, and uh, he's famished, and Jacob has, has made some stew, and, and Esau uh, is, is asking for some stew. Jacob says, sell me your birthright, You're right as the firstborn, and I'll give you some stew. And it says in the Bible that Esau despised his birthright and sold it to him for a pot of stew. Wrestling, still competing. Now Jacob is using more of his wit than his brawn in his struggle with his brother. Chapter 27, the wrestler Jacob gets back in the ring again. This time, it's more like a tag team wrestling because in one corner there's Isaac, and Esau, and in the other corner are Rebecca and Jacob. is part of the plot that's going to deceive uh, Isaac to give the blessing to Jacob instead of the oldest, Esau. But it's Jacob who wins the Oscar for his award-winning performance as Esau, right? You know the story. He goes in, and he's acting it out, and he convinces his father, his blind dad, and he gives the blessing to Jacob. Again, the struggle is going on. Struggler Jacob. Jacob had a default setting as a fighter. He was instinctively self-sufficient. His core belief, his mantra was, if it's going to be, it's up to me. He was believing uh, God helps those who help themselves. That's what his, his belief was. And so we see him securing his own future, working for himself, not trusting anyone. Chapter 28 of Genesis, we see uh, Jacob have his first God encounter up close and personal. And that's that Jacob's ladder dream that he had. And he wakes up, and uh, he recognizes God is in that place. He makes a bargain with God. He vows to give God 10% of everything that he has if God will take care of him. Generous Jacob, 10%. Um, You know, we're, we're still seeing a very underbelly of Jacob bargaining with the Almighty. And of course, on and on the story goes, Jacob does not stumble into anything. God is at work to reveal himself to Jacob. We don't stumble into God either. God is at work at every turn to try and reveal himself to us if we're awake, if we're alert, if we're listening. That's why I don't talk about an experience of God. We talk about an encounter with God. And Jacob needed an encounter with God. But he didn't just need an encounter with God, he needed an encounter with himself. Jacob had to see Jacob the way God saw Jacob. And so, again, God gets out his big chisel and hammer. God gets out more instruments, people, and circumstances, and he starts to work in the subplots of Jacob's life. And he leads him to the land where Laban is. It's going to be his father-in-law. And he sees a young woman, Rachel, that he loves. And uh, he, he decides to get married, but, but he, he's deceived. He marries Leah. And then he works another seven years to get Rachel and you see, God's at work in all this. The deceiver is being deceived here. God's at work. And we see in, in the chapter 30, even his wives are wrestling and competing. And so he has a struggle with his wives because they, they want to sleep with him to have more children. And there's a competition going on between Rachel and Leah. And then there's Laban. After the children are born, even he's, he's still wrestling with his father-in-law being cheated out of his wages. For 20 years, he's there, off in that side story. Do you see how Jacob's whole life has been a struggle, a wrestling match with people and circumstances? All the while, but all the while, he is really wrestling with God. He is really, with each turn, with each decision, he's, he's saying, God, I'm not sure I can trust you. He's saying, God, I don't like the life that you've given me. God, I, I, I'm going to take control. I'm not going to release it to you. I can't trust you to have the best in mind for me. So I'm going to determine the outcomes of my destiny. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever saw that you actually lived that way? All the while, God is standing at the sidelines waiting for Jacob to say yes to God. And each each instrument of his providence, in all the side stories, each instrument of his providence is doing its work. Someone said that Jacob fought fought and worked hard to have a Rachel kind of life, but every morning he woke up with Leah. (laughs) A Leah life instead of a Rachel life. God took the time to knock off the rough edges. God took the time with Jacob to transform him. God takes time with us as well. He's, he's transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. If you look at some of your loved ones that you might th- say, oh man, are they ever gonna get it? God's gonna take the time, pray for them, lift them up, recognize that he's not in a hurry. Perhaps you've read the story, I'm pretty sure it's from the book of, by Watchman Nee, called Sit, Walk, Stand, it's about the book of Ephesians. And Watchman Nee in that book, I believe, tells the story of a lifeguard He's at the side of the the banks of a river, and a man is in the middle of the river drowning. And everybody on the banks of the river knows that that lifeguard's the only one that can save that man from drowning. And yet he stands there and watches passively until the very last moment when he jumps into the water and drags the man out and revives him. And when asked afterwards why he waited so long, He said, I had to wait till he exhausted all of his energies so that he wouldn't take me under with him. What is God doing with most of our lives? God is waiting on the sidelines, on the banks of our river of life. He's watching us struggle it out in our own wisdom, and strength, and abilities. Not not jumping in early because he's worried we're gonna drag him under, not at all. But God is waiting till we come to the understanding that we don't have what it takes to live the life that we need God. I think that's a picture of what God is doing with Jacob. He has been waiting on the sides of the banks of River Jacob, and now it is time for him to jump in. That's the text of scripture that we come to today. And in fact, it does take place at the side of the river, the River Jabbok. We're gonna look at that scripture right now, and um, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 32. And as we open this scripture and as we think about it, I want you to think about how you think about your own life and other lives. You might look around you and you might see people and you say, man, they got life handed to them on a silver platter. Meanwhile, I got to struggle for every inch of progress that I make. Have you ever felt that way? Well, I want you to think about that way with a higher view and vision of what God might be doing because I think we have to ask the question just like Jacob had to ask the question. Not just ask the question, but we need to wrestle with the question. Why? Why is God doing this to me? Why is God allowing this in my life? Because there's an answer that is going to bless you Genesis chapter 32, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 22 of this chapter, where Jacob has now arrived at the side of a tributary of the Jordan River called the Jabbok, and he is about to meet up with his brother Esau. He has sent messengers ahead, and he has been told by those messengers that Esau is on his way with 400 men. Now you know the history. The last time he saw his brother Esau was 20 years earlier and he wanted to kill Jacob. That's why Jacob fled. So this is indeed a moment, a critical moment in the life of Jacob. And let's take a look at what it says in Genesis 32 and verse 22. And if you're in this building with me right now, would you stand as you hear the word of God read to you? Jacob Beginning in Genesis 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Jacob would have been a prime candidate for a hip replacement. I mean, he'd have been at the top of the list, limping into the doctor's office as he would. And he's 97 years old at this point, but it wasn't slowing him down at all, 97 years old. I want to say four things this morning about this scripture before we take a look at how to apply it. And the first thing I want to say, uh, well, there's four things. Jacob's plan is to deal with his past. His prayer is to acknowledge his God. His prevailing is to lay hold of the blessing of God and his penial, or this place is called, is, it's, it's to walk in weakness. He left that place wounded. So let's start with number one, Jacob's plan. I wanna say at the outset that we notice that this is on the way into the Promised Land. This river is the border on the north of the Promised Land. And it's interesting that Jacob's encounter with God is similar to the one that he had when he was leaving the Promised Land. And he had that experience in the dream, Jacob's Ladder, Bethel he called it, House of God. But the thing that's interesting is that regardless of these epiphanies that he's had, over 20 years, Jacob's pretty much the same guy. Jacob is still has the same fundamental orientation of protecting himself, looking out for himself, deceiving in order to gain over others. He's a very self-sufficient man. He's not learned to trust God. That's why at the beginning in verse 3, we read about the scheme that he has to pacify his brother Esau. If you read the earlier part of chapter 32, you'll see that, that he hears that Esau is coming, he's afraid for his life, and he takes messengers, servants, with herds of camels and donkeys and sheep and all kinds of gifts, and he thinks that every time the next wave of gifts come, is gonna start having a change of thought and mind and heart, and he's gonna, he's gonna forgive Jacob. It's interesting. So so he's dealing with his past this way, and um, he seems to have a a very self-made idea yet. He's gonna solve his problem the way he's used to solving his problem, elaborate offerings that might just enable him to, uh, Esau to forgive him. And uh, God's not factored into this plan. God's not factored into this plan yet. In fact, We don't even see him really praying much until uh, later that that night. It was 20 years beforehand that he had started running from Esau, and even though he is walking into the land of Canaan again, his heart is still running in fear. And we'll talk more about uh, this next week when we talk about the actual encounter between Esau and Jacob. We're going to talk about the theme next week of how do you deal with your past. Because that's a really important theme in Jacob's life. It's an important theme in all of our lives. And one of the things that we'll see is that we will get stuck with not being able to really deal with our past. It will always be something that is hanging on to us if we will not invite God into the very hurtfulness and the center of of that past. That's next week. And so Jacob is is making a plan to deal with his past. So far, it's left God out of the picture. Secondly, We see, finally, Jacob praying. You'll notice in verse 9 of chapter 32, Jacob prays, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. He is now praying, and this is the first time we actually have a recorded prayer of Jacob since 20 years earlier in chapter 28. No record of Jacob praying for 20 years, no altar that was built, no pursuing God, calling out to God, no leading his family in private devotions, no. We seem to have a Jacob that is still very independent, but now he's starting to operate from two places. He's starting to operate from this, well, I guess I better give God a chance and pray to him. But he's got a backup plan in case God doesn't come through. I think that's the way often we can operate as well. We live on two levels. We operate from two places. In our own wisdom and strength, we, we make our plans and we, we, we make our decisions and. And if God doesn't come through somehow, well, we've got a backup plan. And so there comes a time when God, though, doesn't put up with that any longer. I think God does put up with that in a younger faith, often in younger people's lives. He understands that maturing is a process. But then there comes a time when God says, It's time to step out into the deep. It's time to go to deeper water. The the days of your childhood and youth and adolescence, those days of faith are gone. I want you to step out and trust me now. No backup plan, Jacob. I want you to trust me. These are faith lessons that are heavier weight. And so Jacob prays, And in this place, God asks him to step into the deep. He wrestles with God. And that's our third point in this prevailing over this angel of God. It's an event that is pronounced in Scripture. Chapter 32, verse 22, Jacob does something very uncharacteristic of Jacob. He sends his servants, his wives, his possessions, his children, everything that he owns he sends it across the Jordan, this place called the Jabbok, and he spends the night alone. Perhaps the last time that Jacob spent the night alone was 20 years earlier, the same kind of place as he was leaving the promised land. And now on the eve of re-entering it, he's alone with God again. Boy, solitude is important, isn't it? Solitude and silence, in this crazy, busy, noisy world. God wanting to speak in a still, small voice, but people never slowing down, never being alone with God. That's a problem. And so Jacob is alone. The geographical location of this place is also very important. It occurred on the threshold of the Promised Land, literally across the Jordan River from Canaan in the northern boundary of the Promised Land called the Ford of the Jabbok, one of the tributaries that flows into the Jordan. The word in Hebrew means poured out or emptied. That's what the word means. Today, the the river uh, is called the the Zerka, or the river of blue, because it's very clear water, apparently, bluish. And it's at this place, this this meaning of poured out or emptying has come to be a symbolic and spiritual meaning and significance in the life of Jacob that parallels the, the significance in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. That we also must come to a point before we cross over into that promises of God, we also come to that point of being poured out and being emptied of pride and self-sufficiency and independence and all that makes us really contrary to the main plot of God's plan in our lives. And so this ceasing to strive, this surrendering up and giving over verse 24 it says a man wrestled with god until the breaking of the day and the verb for wrestled here has the idea of getting dusty in other words this is not just kind of a little pushing and shoving this is a knock him down drag him out dusty rolling in the mud kind of it leaves him with a hip displacement so this is no small thing this is a physical wrestling with likely an angel of God, a representation of God. Some people believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ. We don't know. But he is wrestling with God on this evening of his life, a critical moment. I love the way one uh, author puts it when they describe the play on words because the, the name for Jacob is Jacob, the man, the the river place is Jabbok, or Habok, which is the place. And then there's a play on the word wrestling, which is Hebek, which is this, the match, okay? And the idea is that before Jacob crossed the Jabbok he, to the land of blessing, he had to Hebek wrestle. There's this, and again, my Hebrew is not at all up to where it should be at all. But, but the point I'm making is simply that the, the author is playing on the words, and the meaning is clear that this man must wrestle with this God if he's going to enter into the promises of God. And so, he does. Um, There's many things we could say about this. I want to say three things before we move on. Three things about our Jabbok. And the first thing I want to say is that our personal Jabbok, our place beside the river where God meets us is designed by God for us. He meets us in the place he finds us and he lifts us up, and it'll look and feel different than anybody else's Jabbok. I mean, think about it. In scripture we have this same idea. What did what did God how did God come to Abraham, the sojourner? Three travelers. How did God come to Joshua, the general? Captain of the Lord's army shows up as an angel. How does God come to Peter? I'm gonna make you a fisher of men. And how does God come to Jacob? As a struggling wrestler. See, see that's, that's the way God will come to us personally. He will meet you in a way that he's not met other people because he loves you personally. He knows you personally. He knows the kind of Jabbok you need. It's gonna be designed just for you. It's a discipleship program just for you. The second thing about it is that it's something that we must face alone with God. Nobody else can go there for you. Nobody else can take you by the hand necessarily and lead you there. It's designed by God, but it's also something we need to go through alone with God. David Wilkerson writes this. He said, Jabbok was a tributary of the Jordan. It was a lonely place. And our Jabbok must be faced alone. You can cross the Red Sea with a mighty host of the redeemed who are escaping Egypt. You can cross the Jordan with the victorious army entering into the promised land and taking victory over Canaan. But you will have to cross Jabbok alone. No counselors, no friends, no helpers. This is your private war between you and the Lord God. You must go with God one on one. It's true. God wants a personal encounter with each one of us. And thirdly, this, this Jabbok, our own personal Jabbok, will, it, will involve a self-emptying experience. It'll change us. It'll wound us. It'll make us weaker in some human sense, but mighty and stronger in a spiritual sense. It says in verse 24 that this man as it got to be near dawn, touched the socket of Jacob's hip. Verse 25, and this touch was a literal touch. So if the word is just, just a touch, and yet the touch was significant enough to blow his hip out of joint. And when in that moment, when the touch resulted in a dislocated hip, Jacob realized something. Jacob realized that this, this man, I'm wrestling with has the power to overtake me easily and yet he's not he's letting me wrestle with him there's something in this for us folks have you ever been in a little scuff with somebody like and you're just holding back or have you ever been in a scuff with somebody and you know they're holding back that's what God's doing here Jacob's prevailing because God's letting him prevail. He's wrestling with Jacob because he's he's wanting to see if Jacob's gonna finally lay down all of his energies and strength to live his own life, control his own destiny, and if he's gonna grab hold of God and say, I just need you to bless me, because I've come to see that the blessing only comes from you. And so similarly, in our personal wrestling of life, God is gentle with us. He's waiting to see if you and I will come to realize our own weakness, see if our blessings will be sought in him, not trying to make make our own life blessed. A.W. Tozer, he said, it is doubtful whether God can truly bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. God has to wound our pride. God has to confront us. He has to break us. He brings many instruments of his providence to our lives to do so. So Jacob realizes that he's wrestling with God and finally he comes to this place of understanding. Verse 26, I'm not gonna let you go unless you bless me. And as manipulative as that may sound, God is is delighted to hear those words from Jacob because now God knows that Jacob knows that the true blessing is gonna come from God. And that leads to our final point that Jacob's penial, Jacob's face-to-face encounter leaves him in weakness It results in a new name God did not ask Jacob his name in this passage because he didn't know it He asked Jacob his name because he needed Jacob to say it out loud And when Jacob said his name out loud, what was he doing? He was confessing, yeah, I'm Jacob, I'm a heel grabber, I'm a deceiver Okay, you got me He needed needed Jacob to confess outwardly that that's the way he's been living his life. And it was a sense of repentance and acknowledgement and self-emptying. And then God said, yeah, and your name's not gonna be Jacob anymore. You're gonna be called Israel because you have wrestled with God and prevailed. And that's what Israel means. Israel means he struggles with God. This is a key turning point, folks, We haven't been there until now, but now this is like a conversion for Jacob. He has finally met God in a real way. God has broken through the pride, the strength, and independence, and now he can bless him. And so verse 30, that place is called Peniel, the face of God. Verse 31, the sun is rising on a new day and Jacob comes out of that experience as he walks down to the river bank and he is limping. He is a marked man now. He is a wounded man, a changed man. And uh, he is now crossing over into the promised land, ready for the next stage of his journey. What a picture. Let me share with you a couple of commentaries One commentary, Ewald, he says, he limped as if the crookedness which had previously adhered to the moral nature of the wily Jacob had now passed over into an external physical attribute. And J.C. Ryle says this, the physical physical disability Jacob suffered served as a memorial of the spiritual victory and a symbol of the frailty of human strength in the crisis when God meets man face to face. When God touched the strongest sinew of Jacob the wrestler, it shriveled, and with it, Jacob's persistent self-confidence shriveled as well. What he had surmised for 20 years might be true dawned on him that he is in the hands of the one who has made a promise to him and will keep his promise. And so Jacob's struggle took on a new direction. And with the same scrappy persistence, He hung on to that angel of God until God blessed him. That's a beautiful picture of us who realize that Jesus Christ is who he said and we cling to Jesus Christ because we come to understand that only in him is my blessing found. Only in him can the fountain of my life flow into the abundance that he has planned for me. What a beautiful picture. And so, as we come to the conclusion of this, this morning, I remind you of Tozer's quote, it is doubtful whether God can truly bless a man or a woman greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Yeah, God needs to deal with our pride, with our independence. And I wanna ask you about your own personal Jabbok. Where have you found it? Or your own personal Peniel face to face with God? Have you been left alone? Have you found that you've wrestled with God on certain things of your life? Have you found that that He's asking you to pour it out, to lay it aside, to, to let a go of the, the, the pride or whatever it is? And are you gonna come out of that willing to be weaker in some sense, limping, having the mark of God on your life? And I just want to read one more quote. Each of us must ask what is necessary in our lives for us to see God face to face. What reality do we need to learn about ourselves in order to stand before God and look Him in the face? It may not be self-reliance that we have to recognize. Perhaps it is vanity or selfishness, maybe greed or need for approval. Whatever it is, our usefulness to God depends on it. We cannot expect to look God in the face till we have faces. And so friends, may God bless us as we think this passage through. And I just want to pray for us now as the worship team comes and as we think about this scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, I think right now of Paul, the apostle, when uh, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 12 how he talked about uh, this thing that he was given, a thorn in the flesh, that, caused him to be weak and he came out of that experience recognizing that when he was weak he was strong and that he would actually glory in his weakness more so that the power of christ could rest on him god this is a mysterious spiritual lesson that each one of us must learn by ourselves alone with you and i ask you to take us there god that we would give thought to this kind of a lesson and that you might take us deeper into that kind of faith that doesn't necessarily need a backup plan but trusts fully and wholly in you for you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Lord God, I think that for every one of us, we do not have to look very far to see ways that we are wrestling with you because we are determined to not put something down or to not give something up or to not change our direction. Whether it is pride or, or vanity, whether it is a need for approval, all of those things that we just heard. Every one of us, Lord, we... We know what it is to wrestle and it would be a tragedy if we walked away from that wrestling match unchanged, if we walked away from that wrestling match with everything that we wanted because of our pride. And I pray, Lord, that in our lives, that you would have your way, that we, when we walk away from whatever wrestling match we're thinking about right now, that we would be more dependent on you, that our hearts would be more inclined towards you, that your spirit would have made us humble like we just, we just sang. Help us to be more Christ-like, help us to be inclined towards your heart, and help us to know the joy of you doing that for us. Thank you, Lord. We cling to you. May we keep clinging to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.